Radio Mano Papachango. What's up, everybody? It's the day after Christmas, Wednesday, the 26th of December, coming down to the end of 2018. I was just putting together an episode with a guy named Ben Stewart, um, and he mentions that he's working on his website, and it should be up and ready by the time this goes out. So then I entered in the URL for his website, and I see it's not ready yet. So I'm going to wait to hear back from him before I post that episode, but I'm already sitting here with the program open, my mic, my headphones on, ready to podcast like a motherfucker, and I said, fuck it, I'll just do a Roma. Why not? Do an end-of-year Roma. So that's what we're doing. Uh, As I said, it's the day after Christmas. I'm kind of Christmased out. I'm not a Christmassy kind of guy. I do not have a lot of holiday cheer. I don't know what Yuletide means, but I feel like I'm going to drown in it. So let's open with a message from a listener as far away from the North Pole as you can get, literally. Hey, everyone. Uh, my name is Fritz. Last time I checked in, I was working up in Alaska, but I'm having a bit of a bipolar year. So now I'm down in Antarctica working at McMurdo Station, which is the largest base here in Antarctica. And it's a little like Mecca for us seasonal workers. Currently, I'm standing on the Ross Ice Shelf, the largest ice shelf in the world, looking at the southernmost active volcano in the world, Mount Erebus, which is letting off a little steam at the moment. I just wanted to say you got listeners down here in the ice world, and from the bottom of the planet, stay up, everyone. It's a beautiful day. All right. Thank you for that, Fritz in Antarctica. That's very cool. Uh, Fritz, if you hear me, can you hear me, Fritz? Hello? Uh, Fritz and everybody else, if you're interested in Antarctica, there's an amazing film by directed by Werner Herzog called Encounters at the End of the World, which I highly recommend. It's about people like Fritz, basically. Herzog went down there. I think somebody, some foundation or somebody gave him a million dollars to make a film. And uh, at the beginning, he says, he's telling the story of how the film came to be. And he said, I told them I would not make another film about the fucking penguins. (laughs) So he didn't. But he goes down there and uh, he ends up making the film primarily about, what certainly about the place about some of the um, the life that lives under the ice down there. Some incredible footage uh, where he and Henry Kaiser are under the ice diving. Maybe, it's, maybe Herzog wasn't there. Maybe it's just footage that uh, Kaiser got because that's a very dangerous dive. But anyway, the things that live under the ice down there, incredible. Uh, and then the other thing is about the people who are down there, the, not just the scientists, but the guy who runs the greenhouse that grows the fresh vegetables and guy who works on the trucks and people working in the kitchen and the, the support staff, guys like Fritz. How do they end up down there? Um, as Fritz says, it's sort of a mecca for people who are 
moving around the world doing interesting menial jobs in interesting places, I guess, is, I don't know what Fritz is doing, but that's sort of what Herzog's take on it was. Encounters at the End of the World. Check it out. It's a fantastic film. Hola, chica. Say something, Wadi. <laughs> hey, Chris, and other tangential, <laughs> tangentially speaking listeners. Um, uh, it's Monique from Melbourne. Uh, it's a couple of days past the summer solstice here, and I'm just... Um, harvesting zucchinis in my vegetable garden and looking at my chickens which is really nice got a beautiful backyard here and i've managed to pull up most of the lawn in it (laughs) and replace it with plants um which is a great joy of mine so just thinking of you at this this poignant time in the year i like to celebrate the solstice and the equinox um i think they're important markers in the year and more more auspicious than any kind of calendar year sort of thing so all the season's blessings to everyone and hope you're well thank you monique from melbourne melbourne was my favorite city when i went to australia i didn't spend much time there i think it was just sydney melbourne and somewhere else Fuck, I can't remember what the other town was that I went to. It was a lecture tour when um, Sex of Dawn had first come out in Australia. And uh, I spoke at the Festival of Dangerous Ideas at the Sydney Opera House, which was one of the coolest things ever. And it was interesting, the difference, (laughs) excuse me, the difference between Ted uh, and the Festival of Dangerous Ideas was that Ted was looking over my shoulder constantly, um, micromanaging. They wanted to know down to the last millisecond what I was going to say, how I was going to say it, and uh, what words I was going to use. Lots of restrictions, lots of very uptight brand protective management. Uh, as opposed to the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, where before I went on stage, I said to one of the producers, are there words I shouldn't use? How how should I pitch this? And he said, oh, use whatever words you want, mate. We want people to be scandalized. We want people to talk about this. We want people to be potentially offended. You just say what you want to say. And that's the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. That's my kind of festival. Anyway, uh, these are the last three voice memos that I've received. Normally, I go back to the earliest ones and try to play them in order so that, um, you know, people who sent them in a couple months ago, theirs will come up. But these three just came in and they're, they seem topical. Um, the, you know, the guy in Antarctica and and uh, the solstice, and so they're very timely, and I thought I would just play these today. So I'm going to play one more, and then we'll get into some Rama material. Hey, Chris. This is Tim Lamont, uh, sitting here on a kayak on my pond uh, on Christmas Eve, doing a little fishing, just uh, hooked into my second bass and tossed it back. And before I fix my my uh, lure figured I'd go ahead and tell you how much I appreciate uh, this podcast and and your books and you know how much it's affected my life in in positive ways Um, recently got married to uh, a beautiful 
woman that uh, the first book I had to read was your book because uh, I figured the only way we we're going to get along is if uh, if we had similar beliefs. Um, back this summer, I was out here fishing and <clears throat> listening to you and Duncan talk about your fathers, and and uh, then in uh, September, my father died uh, out of the blue. And I really leaned on you guys, uh, even had my mother listen to y'all's podcast, and it helped her as well. Uh, and still leaning on you guys, because I, I think about my dad all the time. Um, uh, even to the point where, you know, you talk about uh, you're living your parents' uh, unlived uh, dreams, and uh, not a month after my dad passed away, I got a call uh, and offered a job as a professional coach. And that's what he had done at the amateur level his whole life and given his life to, and, uh, uh, wasn't even something I was looking for, but, uh, I'm super excited and proud to be able to kind of live out that dream that was both of ours. So anyhow, man, uh, this is getting a little wordy, so I'll let you guys be and get to the podcast, but love you so much. And, uh, Man, I don't care if you have to take on all sorts of corporate advertising. Keep the podcast going. Thanks, Tim. Uh, yeah, this whole um, question of losing your parent is uh, its interesting. It, it, it's strange. You know, I was sort of um, prepared to get hit with aftershocks because so many people told me it's never easy. It's really hard. And, you know, you're gonna, you know, just be prepared. You know, you're, you're going through this really deep thing. And I, I don't want to minimize what it's been like. My dad died at the beginning of September. So it's been three months, roughly a little over three months. And, um, you know, I'm sure the process will continue till I die, but I feel very lucky in the sense that unlike uh, what Tim described, it wasn't out of the blue. Uh, I think that must be a very different kind of experience. In my case, it was anything but out of the blue. Um, We saw that coming from way, way back. And um, so there was plenty of time to prepare, plenty of time to think about it and talk about it. And, um, you know, of course, there are things for which one can never prepare, and this is certainly one of them to some extent. But, you know, I think it's very different. You know, those of you who've listened to this podcast for a long time will remember um, Justin, for example, um, or Bennett, and... You both of those were out of the blue, and both of those were tragic in a very tangible way. Both of those losses, they, they were young guys. They, they had a lot of life ahead of them. And in the case of Justin, there's also the, the mystery of what happened. Was he killed? What happened? Those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, uh, check the archives. Um, by the way, there's a search window on the website tangentiallyspeaking.com where you can check the archives for anybody that I mentioned. Justin Alexander is the name of that guy. He was on the podcast three or four times. He was a, a good friend and he went missing in India, presumed dead, probably killed. Uh, 
Um, but those were tragic. You know, my 79-year-old dad dying from just system failure, that's not tragic. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't at the beginning of his journey. So that helps. The thing that I find most difficult to wrap my head around is just the finality of it. You know, this is a guy who was always, always alive. As long as I've been alive, he's been alive until three months ago. And so, you know, I think it's just like if the moon weren't in the sky suddenly and it's like, wait a minute, you know, it's you know, it's more than that because there are times of the month where there is no moon. So it's not like that. It's more like, uh, I don't know, if the sky weren't blue, the sky, you know, suddenly was no longer blue. It was something that just was a constant just the nature of life was that dad was there, you know? And, um, that's, that's, what's the hardest thing to wrap my head around. Just the like, Oh, I can't call him. I can't visit him. I can't go watch a football game with him. That's what's strange. And it's not, I don't feel cheated or, I don't know, even calling it a loss feels a little, stingy um, because he had a long life and I had a long life with him god damn I'm in my 50s that's a pretty late time in life to lose one's parents but um, yeah those of you who are going through some kind of loss um, I, I wish there were something I could do to help you more and what Tim referred to as far as the corporate sponsorship, uh, if if you're not familiar with that, I've been entertaining um, the notion of taking on some limited sponsorship of the podcast just because the as much as I appreciate the the support that I get from you from through Patreon and Amazon, uh, that's sort of uh, plateaued and um, it's fantastic and it's very touching that those of you who are supporting the podcast through those avenues um, make the effort to do that. Um, but also I've got an audience here that uh, some different companies would love to be able to connect with. And there are companies that I admire and uh, whose products I use. So why not? If it's, if it's good stuff and, you know, I know everybody spends money, so why not spend money on good shit that I can vouch for? And um, that will allow me to spend more time and effort on the podcast and, uh, you know, fly around and meet with, like I've got a bunch of guests in Europe, for example, that I've been sitting on for a while. Graham Hancock invited me to his house. Uh, it'd be great to go there and record another podcast with him. And uh, Bruce Perry uh, has bought a property in Wales that he's invited me to go visit. I'd love to continue the conversation with him and uh, see Wim in his place in Holland again and lots of people and, and places I'd like to bring to you by way of the podcast. So if I can increase the revenue of the podcast by doing some limited sponsorships. I think that probably makes sense for everybody. I promise you I will never, ever, 
advertise anything that I have not personally used and enjoyed and uh, would recommend to my closest friends. And also, I was talking to a friend of mine about this this morning. I think I'll keep it limited no more than two ads per podcast, uh, or maybe three, but the third will be something unpaid. So it'll be two different companies that are making cool shit that I'll tell you about. And the third thing will be a nonprofit or somebody that deserves your attention, uh, maybe your financial support or whatever, um, but they're not paying me shit. I'm just going to give them a shout out. So maybe I'll do it that way. Anyway, your thoughts are most welcome on, on that and everything else. All right. Tired of listening to myself talk. Let's play some music. This song is called Sonfo, S-O-N-F-O. And the band is Secauba Bambino, S-E-K-O-U-B-A, and then Bambino, spelled Bambino. Uh, I believe this is an African band that's playing Latin music. I love, I love those mixes. I love getting a cultural mix right in one song. So this is an African band that's playing Latin music. It makes me want to dance in a way that I really can't dance, but it makes me want to do that sort of, you know, shuffling feet, samba kind of dancing. Uh, I hope it makes you feel that way too. Sonfo, check it out. Aha! I'm Olu, Ale Frade. Ale Frade, I'm Oto, Nyelanye. Maye Kuminkela, Ntufo. Naka Kenyana, Ntufo. Nama Kenyana, Ntafola. Ntese.
get to a letter an email from a listener this is from jesse says thanks for the podcast it's been a special companion over the last few years i wanted to ask a question i've been struggling with as each day passes and the climate science becomes more and more dire and the american political response is more and more absurd how do you continue to find daily pleasure in activities that all seem to be leading us toward mass destruction on a global scale I have found that meditation and mindfulness are helpful to not get carried away with anxiety around a dying planet, but that's always pierced by the recognition that we are on this sinking ship with no reason to believe that we are going to be able to keep it from going down. Well, that is the question, isn't it? That is a big-ass question there, Jesse. I guess there are different... um, the ways, different techniques, um, cognitive techniques that um, help me to not just bang my head against the wall. Uh, One of them is exemplified in the Motherfucker Awards. By the way, go check out motherfuckerawards.com. The photos from the event are up, and within uh, by the middle of January, we think the videos will be up, and you can participate in the social media campaign to exact brand damage on the winners and maybe shame them into making some changes. Um, but the truth is that even if Coca-Cola reduces their plastic production by 10%. That's not going to save the planet. Um, So how to deal with it? Well, one is laugh at it because there is no other response to the 
situation that makes any sense at all to me uh, or that makes more sense than just trying to find humor in it. It's, it's laughter is one of the things that our species is able to do. Um, I don't know that any other species really laughs. I know some species make laughing sounds like chimps. And, and there does seem to be some sense of humor in other animals. They're, sometimes the way dogs play, they, they seem to have a, uh, an awareness of, I don't know, irony or some, something verging on to humor. Um, but certainly outright laughter, comedy, uh, laughing in the face of despair. That's a pretty uniquely human quality, and I think we should utilize it. Uh, as much as we possibly can. It's not going to change anything, but it changes our experience. And that's all we can change, right? There's the the Buddhist um, saying that um, pain is inevitable, but suffering is a choice. So what's going to happen is going to happen. And we can't really do much about that. But how we frame it in our own experience, that is up to us. So structurally, the way I've dealt with it is by not having children. Granted, when I was in my 20s, climate change wasn't a big story and I wasn't making decisions on whether or not to have children based upon the science of climate change. But for those of you who are young now and you're thinking about these things, it is an issue. And um, I'm not saying that people who decide to have children are making a mistake. I'm just saying it's a factor that you might want to consider because when you do have children, you tie yourself into a certain kind of obligatory optimism that uh, could could prove to be very painful because, you know, I've heard people say this, like, oh, I have to be uh, an optimist. I have kids. I, they say that as if that makes sense. But when I hear it, I think, wait, you have kids, therefore you're proudly declaring that you are no longer uh, affiliated with rational thought? Is that what's happening here? Like, I have kids, therefore I need to conclude that lead paint doesn't cause cancer. (laughs) What? It doesn't make any sense that that little loop there, but it seems to be very common. And so I can only conclude that it's a result of a deep psychological need. It's not a result of any kind of rationality at all. It's just presented as rationality because that's what makes people feel better. It's been demonstrated many times that we have our biases and our perceptions, and then we fill in the story behind it. Um, sort of ex post facto, we make a story for why we feel that way. When in fact, we felt that way before we even started thinking about the story. You find if you're in a long-term relationship with someone that that can often crop up in relationships. You see the person wakes up in the morning 
and he or she is just in a shitty ass mood. And then during the course of the day, they find reasons to explain the shitty ass mood. But you know them well enough to know that they woke up there. It has nothing to do with that phone call that came in at 10 a.m. or that you burned the bacon or whatever the fuck they're pissed off. They think they're pissed off about. They actually woke up pissed off. I think that's pretty clearly how most of our thinking goes down. You have the conclusion and then you fill in the story to reach that conclusion. So I guess what I'm saying is that structurally there are things you can do in your life that reduce the problem to your life. So I look at it and I say... I feel a deep, deep sense of sadness for the animals that are going extinct, the species that are being lost, the shit that is being dumped into the oceans and the rivers and the oil that's spilling into pristine Amazon streams that I'll never see and the environmentalists who are being murdered in their fucking houses in Honduras and Guatemala and Brazil and all over the place. And yeah, I despair. But I also say... It's bigger than me, so much bigger than me, and it's like screaming at a fucking hurricane. It doesn't matter. The hurricane's coming in, and so what do I do? How do I help the people around me? Not to overcome what's happening, but maybe, as Jesse says, we're on the sinking ship. And we're not going to be able to keep it from going down. That's true. But maybe we can build lifeboats. And maybe we can build a lifeboat big enough for some of our friends to join us. Because nobody wants to survive alone. That's not survival. So I've been looking at, and, and this actually gets back into something I was talking about earlier, accepting some advertising. Look, I've been leaving a lot of money on the table here uh, on this podcast. The audience of the podcast is somewhere around 100,000, at least 100,000 downloads per episode. I don't know how many. I just know like minimal, it's around 100,000. The way podcasting works, it's impossible to really know how many people are listening because what happens is I've got a, every podcast has a, a host, which is a server where I upload this audio file. When I'm finished with this, I press a few buttons and it goes up and it's on Libsyn is one of the biggest podcasting uh, hosting services. Now, Libsyn keeps track of how many times that file is downloaded, right? So if you're in Mongolia and you download a podcast or you stream it for more than three minutes or whatever there cutoff point is, I don't know, and it counts as a download, that registers. And I can look on a map and I see a readout how many times this podcast was downloaded in Mongolia in the last 30 days. And I can see total downloads and what part of the world and all that. So that's all cool, right? Um, but the problem is that's just a very minimal number um, because apps podcast apps, a lot of them, what they will do is they'll download an episode once and then they propagate it from their server. So for example, there's a, a podcast app that I just heard about recently called Podcast Addict. And the reason I heard about it was that some of these 
some episodes were working well on some apps and not on others. And people were writing to me and saying, hey, it's not working on Podcast Addict, but it's fine on iTunes. It's not working on this. So I downloaded all these different apps so that I could test them and try to figure out what was going on. And I was looking at Podcast Addict and my podcast, they have information on how many people um, subscribe to it. And on Podcast Addict, I think it said 48,000 subscribers. So just on that app, there are 48,000 people who are subscribed to this podcast. So you add the Libsyn numbers, the Podcast Addict numbers, and then I don't know how many other apps do that. So I have no idea. I, I don't even know how many podcasting apps there are out there, you know, for listening to podcasts. So the truth is nobody has any fucking idea how many people are listening to their podcast. And then uh, you say, okay, well, if you could possibly figure that out, let's say it's 200,000 people download the podcast um, every episode. Well, how many of them actually listen to it? How many people listened to the first part of this and said, oh, it's a Roma, fuck that. Well, they would have seen it because I, I named them Roma. But they're like, ah, I don't want to listen to Roma. I, I like the interviews. I, I don't know because they downloaded it. So it counts somewhere, but there's no way for me to know if they actually listen or maybe they listen halfway through and then they get distracted. No way to know. So the science of judging the scale of a podcast audience is very inexact is my point. Um, but I do know that it's at least a hundred thousand. It's into the six figures. Um, and advertising rates for that are somewhere between uh, 20 and $30 per thousand downloads. So that r roughly estimates to three, $4,000 per episode per ad. So if I did two ads per episode, that's about, I don't know, between seven and $10,000 per episode, I do four episodes a month. You're looking at like $28,000, $30,000 a month. It's a lot of money. It's a lot more money than I make now uh, or than I've ever made, actually. And I'm in a position now where uh, I'm trying to save for retirement. I'm trying to take care of my mom. I'm trying to take care of some other people I don't want to talk about because it's, it's their business. But somehow I have become the breadwinner of the family, which nobody saw coming. Believe me, nobody saw that coming. And I consider family to include ex-girlfriends and friends and people I love, whatever. That's family. So when I say to you, as I have sometimes, at least 10%, more like 20, I don't keep track of it, but a significant proportion of whatever I earn from this podcast goes to other people. Those are some of the people. Um, I don't make any money from the t-shirts, for example, all that goes to my mom, uh, who's, you know, since my dad died, she's getting half the retirement money she was getting. So the point is that, that I've been leaving a lot of money on the table, um, by not doing advertising and, some of that money, most of that money could be going to people I love. And that gets back to the point of this response to Jesse's email that I've been thinking a lot. Casilda and I have been talking about building a place where 
people can come together and share energy, share love, share constructive um, ideas. And I'm so lucky to have you, you, and I'm talking to you directly listening to this because when I say I'm going to Bali, I get 20 emails from people saying, hey, check out this homestay. Make sure you go here. And my, my cousin's down there. Go you know, talk to my cousin. Here's his email. And people want to contribute. They want to participate. And because of the nature of the people who gather around this podcast, there's lots of good, good energy, good ideas, great experience, and people who are trying to find ways to get through this fucking hurricane that we all see coming in. Um, They're dark, dark clouds. And we all know it's coming. We can feel it. You can smell it. So what are we going to do? We're not going to save the planet. We're not going to stop the storm. But the planet's not going to die. It's going to take a hit. It's already taken a hit. And maybe global population is going to take a big hit when the fucking Ganges dries up. There are hundreds of millions of people who aren't going to have water. There are going to be some real ugly things happening. But maybe we can ride it out. And if we're going to ride it out, we're going to do it with each other. So we've been talking about maybe buying some land Uh, We're looking at different places around the world, maybe in the U.S., and just buy a big piece of land with some water and get out there with some friends and have a garden and have uh, some chickens and maybe some pigs and do a permaculture kind of situation and have build a lifeboat build a lifeboat where you people can come and visit and contribute and other people can contribute and everyone does that do that with your friends raise some money it doesn't have to be a lot there are lots of places in the u.s where you can buy 20 acres for 30 40 50 thousand dollars with um well water and you can put up some yurts and some airstreams and some vans and, you know, until you build a place. Uh, our idea is to sort of build a central area with a kitchen and a theater and a library and a hangout zone. And then everybody has their own tiny house or their yurt or their camper or whatever. And so everyone has their private space. But when we want to be together, when you want to be with people, you know where to find us. You know, and then we build a sauna and we build a, you know, hot tub. And and just as time goes on and people come and help out and uh, we find more money and find ways to do things that it grows. And then when we're gone, it's left for other people. So that's what we're thinking of. Try to build a a life raft because you're right. The ship is definitely sinking. Think globally, act locally. I will certainly keep you posted on that. I mean, it's kind of a longish middle-term plan. It's not something we're going to be doing next week. Uh, I'm going to, you know, I'm looking at Civilized to Death coming out in the fall. I'm probably going to pitch another book um, before that comes out. So I'll get some advance money from that. And 
Uh, we want to set things up. So Cassie's making some money doing her comprehensive health consultations. And uh, maybe that's something we can do in the center as well. Have some other healing things going on. Have some um, some workshops and seminars and just make it a place where people can come and, and meet each other. And uh, I'll certainly let you know as that develops, if it develops. In the meantime... This is a great song. This is a tune from the 70s that I always loved when I was growing up. It's called Dancing in the Moonlight, and the band is King Harvest. probably songs like that that explain why i'm such a fucking hippie like when i was a little kid that's the kind of thing that was on the radio just imagine a bunch of free loving hippies dancing in the moonlight and here i am 56 years old thinking about trying to build a community somewhere where people can come and dance in the moonlight while i get old i guess that's a good way to get old let's see philip uh a cheesy but universal question 
I would like to please ask you an admittedly cheesy question, and yet one I feel might be universal. I was wondering if you have ever thought to yourself that you'd like to go back in time and give your younger self a perspective on something you wish you knew at the time but didn't. I'm 33, and I feel that while I'm not young, I think really don't have the decades behind me for proper reflection with regards to this question. My father is 73, and when posed with the same question, he said that he wishes he could tell his younger self to not have so much anxiety about the outcome of things. I found that advice to be pretty solid. I'd like to hear your perspective, and thanks. Philip. All right, Philip, that is a good question. I think your father is right. I, I agree with him. Uh, partly because you never know how things are going to turn out, and partly, and maybe this is related, because so much is out of your hands. You know, you, you can't... It's like travel. You, I think people make a mistake in trying to nail everything down. I'm going to go to India for a month. I'm going to go... First, I'm going to, I'm going to land in Delhi. I'll be there for two nights. I'm staying at this hotel. Then I'm going to go to Agra. I'm going to see the Taj Mahal. That'll be three nights. I'm staying in this hotel. I'm going to have dinner at this restaurant. I'm using this guide. And then I'm going to catch this flight. And I'm going to go to Agra. No, I'm already in Agra. To Bombay. I'm going to go to Bombay. And then I'm going to... That is not the way to travel. The way to travel is I'm going to go to India for a month. Maybe if you're anxious about such things, you line up a hotel for the first night or two. And then you fucking play it by ear. And also, I wouldn't stay in a hotel. I'd stay in a guest house where you'll meet people like you. And then play it by ear. See how things go. An even better way to travel is to say, I've got $5,000. I'm going to go travel until I run out of money. That's a much better way to travel. I've traveled both ways. When you travel based on time, you count down. I've got 27 days left, 26 days left, 25 days left. When you travel with money, you count down the money. I've got $4,000 left. I've got $3,800. I'm going to stay in this little village where it costs almost nothing. And my trip just got longer because I'm spending very little money. That's a much better way to travel. You count up in time. I've been traveling for six weeks. I've been traveling for eight weeks. I've been traveling for four months. I've been traveling for a year. That's a much nicer way to frame a much, uh, it's a, it's a richer way to frame the experience of travel than to count down. Oh, I've only got four days left. Oh my God. I've only got three days left. And I think people look at life that way. You know, they're like, I mean, I'm 56. I could look at it and say, oh my God, I probably only have 25 years left, maybe 30 if I'm lucky, but I'll be really old. As opposed to, fuck, I've had 56 kick-ass years and it keeps rolling. Holy shit, am I lucky. Same, you're saying the same thing. You're just experiencing it differently. So I think your dad's right. Stop deciding how things are going to go when you have no fucking clue. Just have a direction in mind. I want to climb that mountain. I don't know how the fuck I'm going to get there. I don't know. When I get to the base of the mountain, I'll see the path up the mountain. But from here, all I know is I want to climb that mountain over there. I want to go to India. I don't know how it's going to turn out. I don't know who I'm going to meet. I have no idea. I might get sick and decide to stay in, in the guest house and not take that trip to Kashmir. And then I'll meet someone and that person's going to say, I'm going to Rajasthan. You want to come to Rajasthan? Things happen you can't possibly predict. That's the beauty of life. And if you try to map it out too specifically, you close yourself to those 
surprising and magical encounters that change everything. So yeah, give up that sense of control, I would say, and just focus on tendencies. Where you want to go more or less, but not how you're going to get there. And then just go, just start. Um, the thing that I think about a lot, honestly, uh, and I don't really have regrets, um, but, and I'm sure I've said this many times on the podcast, I wish that I knew myself better earlier, which I think probably everyone, if they're honest, would say, but I think I pursued that self-knowledge pretty aggressively through travel, through psychedelics, through relationships, through reading lots of books, lots of novels, um, whatever was interesting to me by structuring my life. So I'd have lots of time for those sorts of pursuits. So I did get to know myself pretty deeply, pretty early, I would say, but there was a lag between knowing myself and being, um, ruthless about it. I guess that's what I would say to my younger self is like, know yourself and then be absolutely unashamed and ruthless about putting that on the table because every minute that you delay doing that is a waste of time. And what I mean by that is that we spend so much of our time and energy, I think, when we're young, trying to shape ourselves to the expectations of other people because we are desperate to be loved and accepted. And so we try to become what other people would like us to be. And the other people are the friends we choose to hang out with or maybe the people we work with in the career that we've chosen, maybe the people in the graduate school or the medical school or whatever, the, you know, the SEAL training or whatever it is, whatever path we've chosen, we try to conform ourselves to the expectations of those people in that path. Um, but it doesn't really work because whoever you are, that's who you are. And to the extent that there's a conflict between the environment that you've chosen and the, the being that emerges in you, then you have frustrations and you have despair. Uh, that can be in a marriage. You might marry someone or in a long-term relationship, you're in, you commit to someone who wants you to be someone that you gradually realize you're not. Huh. What do you do about that? Well, some people spend their whole lives caught in that conundrum. And you get trapped in that because you entered into this lifelong commitment when you didn't really know who you were or you knew who you were, but you were still willing to pretend you weren't. And so this is all very wordy and I know it's, uh, I wanted to be more succinct here, but what I'm trying to say is there are two stages, know yourself 
and then stop pretending to be anyone else. And it's so important to take that second step. I think some people get to know themselves. I mean, the most obvious example is like you, you realize you're gay and you've been dating girls, but you never really were into it. And at some point in your early twenties or late teens or something, you're like, Oh shit, this is all bullshit. This is all a lie. I've never been into women sexually. I'm into dudes. I've been telling myself I'm bi. I'm not bi. I'm gay. Now what? Well, the longer you wait to come out and live your life as a gay man, the more likely you are to get yourself into situations that are going to be extremely painful to get out of. Similar situation, you know, if you're not monogamous, you know you're not monogamous. You know you can never be happy for the rest of your life having sex with one man. I'm talking to you ladies and or gay men. And you don't admit that. You don't admit it to yourself because you're afraid people are going to think you're a slut. People are going to look down on you. People, no man's ever going to love you. No man would ever accept that from you, whatever. The longer you delay inhabiting this identity that you know is yours, the more time you waste not only in the present, but in the future, trying to extricate yourself from situations that you entered under false pretenses. So when I look at my life and say, fuck, I wish I'd known something. I wish I'd done something. What I wish I'd done was as soon as I knew who I was in terms of relationships um, is the main thing I'm thinking of. Cause the other stuff I figured out pretty early, like I'm not a guy who's going to punch in and work all day in a cubicle. I'm not a guy who's going to have a family and be um, tied to the money-making machine in order to support those kids and, you know, buy them Nikes and all that shit. I mean, I knew I wasn't that guy. But with relationships, I was trying to make it work with a girlfriend at a time thinking like, oh, I'm unhappy because she's not the most, you know, she's not the one. And it wasn't until I was in my early thirties that I realized, Oh, there's no one for me. There never will be a one for me. I'm a traveler. Uh, I, I can have a home, but I'm not a guy who stays at home all the time. And, uh, I wish I had copped to that as soon as I realized it. And as it turned out, it was a couple of years. And then when I finally did cop to it, I thought that I was relegating myself to a life of loneliness because I thought no woman could possibly accept what I'm saying. And in fact, what I found was that women admired me for my honesty and my courage. And sure, maybe half the women who thought maybe they wanted to be involved with me once we had that conversation, realized like, no way, and they bailed. But the women who stayed were the ones I really wanted to get to know anyway. And I think this gets to the crux of what I'm trying to say, is that rejection is a gift because the people who reject you, if they reject you based upon who you really are, they're giving you a great gift because they're not wasting your time. 
So if you just put it up front who you are, yes, people are going to reject you. People are going to walk away from you. Good. Because otherwise you would have wasted days, weeks, maybe years of your life with that person. And eventually you would have ended up in the same place. They would have walked away from you 15 years later when you had two kids and a mortgage and your families loved each other. And now you've created all this destruction. Much better to have her walk away from you five minutes into the conversation the first night you meet her. Much better. Because what happens? A space is opened up for someone else. Someone who actually likes you this way, admires you for your honesty and your courage, that's a much deeper relationship, a much better relationship, and one that could quite possibly last your entire life because it's based on truth. Okay, that was a very long fucking response, but um, yeah, that's what I think about when I look back on when I was young, wish I knew. I wish I knew to be true to myself, ruthlessly true to myself. And then there's that line in Hamlet, um, I forget, it's Polonius, I think, uh, who says, to thine own self be true, and it follows, as night follows the day, thou canst not then be false to any man. All right, we're about an hour into this. I'm going to say goodbye. Thank you for listening. I will be back soon with a regular edition of Tangentially Speaking with Ben Stewart once once I hear back from him. And if his website's not ready, I'll move on to the next one because I've got a bunch of really, really good ones in the can coming your way in the new year. I hope everything's going great for you out there. Uh, I hope 2018 was an interesting nourishing year for you and um, that 2019 will be even better. Let's all build our lifeboats and invite each other on board and maybe we can throw some ropes together and uh, and all those life rafts tied together will be one big floating island and we'll all be out there happy and healthy and dancing in the moonlight. So let's, uh, I'm going to play you out with another 70s funky party tune. Come and get your love. Leon Redbone. Catch you next time.